Salmo, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk with people about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. Today on Sound Lore, PhD candidate Ben Danner talks with Dr. Brandon Barker and Dr. Claiborne Rice about their recently published book, Folk Illusions, Children, Folklore, and Sciences of Perception. Dr. Brandon Barker is assistant professor of folklore here at Indiana University, where he teaches classes on folklore and embodiment, children's folklore, and American country music. He is also editor of the Children's Folklore Review. Dr. Claiborne Rice is associate professor of English at Louisiana University at Lafayette, where his research and coursework focus on how contemporary theories of linguistics, especially cognitive linguistics, can be used to understand poetic language and practice. Ben Danner is a doctoral candidate at Indiana University in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, studying health beliefs and the material culture of health and healing. Folk Illusions was recently awarded the Opie Prize as the best recently published scholarly book on children's folklore. In it, doctors Barker and Rice argue that folk illusions, youthful playforms that trade on perceptual oddities, are often overlooked instances of children's folklore that offer an important avenue for studying perception and cognition in social and embodied development. Using a cross-disciplinary approach that combines ethnographic methods with empirical data, our podcast guests discuss a few of the folk illusions they encountered and explore the complexities of embodied perception. Hi guys, I'm Clay Rice down here in Louisiana. I'm Brandon Barker. My name's Ben Danner. All right, uh, and today uh, we'll be discussing Dr. Barker and Dr. Rice's work here, Folk Illusions, Children, Folklore, and Sciences of Perception, Indiana University Press 2019. So uh, why don't we start off, uh, I guess, with uh, the origin story. So how did we get here to Folk Illusions? That's an interesting question. I was actually a student of Clay's at Louisiana, so he was a graduate director at the time. And Clay uh, works in cognopoetics, and I was in a class on cognopoetics. And it turns out that we were uh, focusing on this particular week on uh, conceptual blending theory. And maybe I'll let you step in, Clay, and tell the story of what happened in class. Do you remember the form that I brought up? It, it was, uh, uh, wasn't it, was what we ended up calling uh, concentration or... Uh... The chills. Uh, the chills, right? Yeah. Yeah, he came and he mentioned, I think it was maybe, maybe in class and then after class, you know, uh, you know, if, if that would be a kind of an example where, where blending would come into play. And I, I thought I had never thought about it before because I'd only used it in, in, you know, thought about it in the context of, of poetry or just in context of language. So integrating the body, I thought, well, you know, that's a that's an so Clay. If you'll jump in and tell them what conceptual blending theory is, I'll fill out the chills. Oh yeah, the um, the blending theory. It's uh, uh, Falconier and uh, and Turner uh, worked together, and I guess in the mid '90s and late '90s to develop this uh, theory of conceptual integration, and the idea is to to look at how uh, well how we blend ideas, right, and um, uh, Essentially, it's become a pretty influential uh, sort of uh, paradigm in mostly in cognitive linguistics is where people use it. Uh, but it's it's grown out uh, since then. And um, it's really, uh, uh, I guess, a way of talking about metaphor. Right. 
uh, it tends to be a little bit more specific than just to assert that something is a metaphor. You can uh, start to talk about why something seems more, why certain things seem more metaphorical than other things, for example. So it's really interesting, uh, conceptual blending theory, one easy way to explain it is that it deals in blending together two different conceptual input spaces. And one of the most famous examples is uh, the metaphor of the surgeon as a butcher. Okay, so you have to know what a butcher is, and we think about what a butcher does to bodies, to carcasses, and then we have to know what a surgeon is, and we think about what a surgeon is supposed to do to bodies and carcasses. And when we blend those two input spaces, we get this more metaphorical representation of this terrible, awful Halloween version of a surgeon who's hacking people to pieces. And so, uh, as Clyde was teaching us the tenets of this particular theory, um, I just happened to think about, because I grew up playing chills, and the chills works where there is two participants. One participant stands in front of another participant. And a lot of times it's an adult performing this particular form onto a child. And they will stand behind the child, the adult might, and put a fist on their head and say, crack an egg on your head. And then run their fingers down the side of their face. Let the yolk run down. Let the yolk run down. Stab a knife in your back. Fingers down the back. Let the blood run down. Let the blood run down. Spiders crawling up your back, little finger spiders up the back. And it ends with this, this uh, couplet, which is tight squeeze, cool breeze. Now you get the shiveries or now you get the chills. And it's meant to give you this kind of frisson, um, a chill, chilling experience. So this is really interesting for me because I thought about it immediately because you're clearly blending two different aspects of mental experience. One, the mental experience of what the body is going through, and one, the mental experience of the lyrical components, the semantics of the lyrical components of the little uh, poetic song, egg yolk, blood, whatever it may be, spiders. Ugh, I still get the chills just thinking about spiders. So I thought, well, wow, isn't this a blend, Clay? And this really one little sort of intellectual uh, uh, insight piqued our interest, and we built out the genre from there. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I actually remember being a kid and having that done to me. Yeah, it was an experience. That was in Maryland. So, okay, well, we um, so. never stopped doing tour work. Was it, what, it was it done to you by a parent or an adult? No, it was just by, I, I want to say, it's probably elementary school, I uh -huh. think, when I had it done. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, out in Maryland. So I guess it's pretty wide spread, I'm assuming. I don't know. It's not, I'm is sure it, we'll or is it regional here. or? The chills is the most popular form that we know of. That is, we've surveyed hundreds of college-age students from all over the country, of course, and certainly yeah. uh, cross-cultural examples, too, or participants are from different countries. And um, in those surveys, the chills shows up most frequently. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, so I want to talk about this blending a little bit more here. Um, and so I, I, I kind of read this as kind of muddying the waters of the hierarchy of senses and the, this idea that senses can be these kind of uh, neatly separated categories. In a way, it seems like your work is pointing towards these things, maybe for lack of a better word, are kind of blended together, um, almost like a, a, a synesthesia or something like that. Um, is that a fair assessment maybe or? Absolutely. Clay, you want to go yeah. first? Well, I was going to say, it's, it's very interesting, actually. In the, in, the, in the book or in their discussions of blending, uh, in, in blending theory, essentially, there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to multimodality, although it seems like a pretty clear you know, application. Um, there isn't a great example in the book that we actually import in the, from their book that we import to our book, which is 
they explain at one point what it, how you might how the ski instructor teaches someone to ski, right? And what they you know, tell them you know to pretend that you're a waiter, right? And so this is a good example because and they don't really discuss it as multimodal in the in the in their book, but it was a really good example for us because it showed us that 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 they were really thinking about the possibility of blending certain elements of experience, which would be considered, you know, uh, body based, uh, something like that, kinesthetic um, with, uh, with the conceptualization, right? So that you, if, if the skier imagines that he or she is a waiter holding a, 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 a plate of, you know, a, a platter of glasses or something, then that will help them to maintain the right uh, posture uh, for skiing. So we, uh, th- there has been some other work, very interesting uh, work on signing, right? On metaphorical use of in, in sign language. And so uh, the way that signers use their local space in order to, uh, in order to, you know, communicate different things, right? So it's not, but it's not just the, the iconicity of the signs themselves. It's also marks of emotion and that kind of thing, which contributes to overall understanding. And so that, you know, at some point those things are blended together in our understanding. Right. And so that's, uh, that's really what the blending theory was, was about at that time. Yeah. So what we found is uh, the chills is one example of a perceptual illusion that kids play with in a traditional way. So we came to define this genre as kinesthetic and verbal actions that create an intended perceptual illusion. And it's usually done in ludic context. It's usually done for fun and playfulness. Although there are some sort of spooky, scary versions that we may get into uh, at some point. But once we came to study the genre, and um, um, we've got over a hundred different forms if you include variants at this point. Um, what you understand is that there would be no way to think about the genre if you were going to cordon off particular senses. If you're going to say, I'm only interested in visual illusions, or I'm only interested in haptic illusions, or I'm only interested in auditory illusions, you wouldn't be able to understand uh, the, the genre and the aggregate. No. Yeah. One of the things that we ended up focusing on is the way that, a way that, that uh, characterizations, that is sort of the, the, uh, the language input, the way that characterizations tend to shape individuals' perception of what it is that they're experiencing, right? Um, you know, a good example is something like, um, like uh, what we call the church bell illusion, right? Uh, sometimes known uh, popularly, maybe on the internet, as the coat hanger illusion or coat hanger bell or something like that, right? You take a coat hanger or some other metal object and you uh, you tie a couple strings to it, and you take those strings and that wrap the each end, end of each string around the, around two fingers and you put the, your fingers in your ear, right? In your ears. And then you have a partner, hopefully who will bang the, the coat hanger or the, the, the metal object. And of course, you know, it's not surprising, right? The sound will go up the string and into your ears. So the, the illusion comes when, when the noise is a lot louder than you think it's going to be. This is really the surprising part, right? So, you know, you say, well, what's the illusion? This thing is just, it's, of course, it's making a ringing noise and I can hear it. But the thing is, when you watch the other person do it, like when we first heard about this, when we first learned about it, we immediately went home and then uh, 
and Brandon and I did it using the, I think the rack out of the oven. Right. And, you know, and so, you know, he, he had it in his fingers and his ears and I banged the, the, uh, the rack and just the look on his face, just surprise, you know, and like, Oh my. And, and that, that immediately makes you want to do it. Right. Which is one of the factors that we get from all the people that we interview. Like this is how this thing gets passed around. Right. Everybody, like you see the person, you see them experience it, whether it's the, you know, the chills, you see the person get the chills and you're like, Oh, I want to try that. You know? And so um, that, and so the, the illusion there really is the way that you say, it sounds like church bells, doesn't it? And the person's like, yes, that's it. It's so loud. Like you're standing right next to the church and people can't, they can't believe it. Like when you tell them it's loud. You tell them in advance, you know, oh, it's going to be loud like church bells. And they're like, they say, oh, no, okay. And then they do it. And then they're surprised, even though they knew in advance, they're still surprised. And so there's, that's really sort of the illusory element of that, uh, of that particular illusion, right? Yeah. Yeah, no. And that's one of the exciting parts about this book. I feel like there's just so many illusions I need to try out now. Um, (laughs) And so uh, I want to move on to the, uh, just the fieldwork experience here, because it's, it it was so uh, interesting, so unique for me um, to be reading a book that was largely of uh, child informants. Uh, I feel like. Uh, um, and so what was it like uh, working with uh, children for uh, perceptual illusions? Uh, and, and why work with children and not adults to collect those? There's a couple of really interesting points to make here. One is that we think the core lesson of this book is if you were going to say, so, you know, what is the lay perspective? What do we learn from studying the lay perspective in the context of perception? If you go and read um, a lot of the perception literature in psychology and cognitive science and related disciplines, what you find is a kind of rhetorical trope. And the trope goes something like this. The naive lay person on the street doesn't know that the world isn't directly connected to the perceptions as the lay person perceives it. It doesn't know that there's a mysterious quality to our perceptions in which sometimes there's a mismatch of what we are seeing and what is actually there. Seeing is not always believing. It's just, it shows up all over the place. I mean, we've got uh, dozens of examples of scientists making this move. So if you just pay attention to this little study, just a little bit, and you just think even about a really famous form like rubber pencil, and you think about how many people have ever played rubber pencil, the thing that you realized almost immediately is like, oh, wait, no, that's not true. People aren't naive to the illusory tendency of perception at all. We somehow have folded into our understanding of the way that we perceive the world that sometimes it's illusory. Okay, so if that's the key sort of classical folkloristic insight, this is what we get from learning about the lay perspective in the context of perception. What's super interesting, this is why your question is really good, is that we learn it by studying kids. We don't learn it by studying adults. Why? Because adults don't really play the forms as frequently as kids do, which raises another open-ended question. Why is that true? So, you know, um, I've taken to saying that uh, children's folklore has to be as important to folkloristics as language acquisition is to linguists. And so if anything else, I hope that we can maybe uh, recharge and we, it, you know, we've got a lot of great studies in the history of folkloristics, but maybe we can recharge that desire to attend to developmental moments so that we can learn new things about lay perspective. 
Mm-hmm. Well said. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, what yeah. are uh, what are some uh, kind of memorable experiences of of working with uh, child informants? I, I I can recall the at least the one in the beginning. I, I think it was where you had a student bring in her child to class and he couldn't remember, or he said that he wasn't doing it or something. <laughs> he wasn't performing the illusion, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, yeah. Well, uh, I think. Uh, he, he he reorganized her story on how he had learned the illusion that he mm-hmm. made up or something along those lines, and this happens all the time. So one of the things about doing field work with kids is that it's so very much different than doing yeah. field work with adults. It's almost like working. We're we're dear friends with a comparative psychologist, a buddy of ours named Danny Pavanelli, who says that he's basically working with alien minds whenever he works with chimpanzees. Well, the younger you get with humans. I've got a two-year-old right now, and she seems so very human in a lot of ways. (laughs) At the same time, she is also so very not human and not like us. Logic doesn't work the same way. One quick, (laughs) cute kid example, and then I'll dive into the book. Just yesterday, I was asking her if she wanted eggs. She said, yes. And I said, "Uh, okay, I'll make you an egg. And she said, two. And I said, well, you know, a lot of times you don't eat your one egg. Are you sure you want two eggs? Two, I'm two. And it took me a long time to figure out that she wanted two eggs because she's two years old. And for her, that flows perfectly logically. And so there's a kind of alien quality to working with kids that makes ethnography so hard. And so, um, yeah, they'll sneak up on you. you. They can tell you one thing one time, and if you ever try to get them to perform it again, they'll pretend like they didn't do that or they have no idea what you're talking about. But Zane was great. He came in that day and first told us a really good Yo Mama joke. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, <laughs> but it was uh, Yo Mama. Uh, Yo Mama uh, entered an ugly competition, but the judges said, sorry, no professionals. <laughs> and the whole class just laughed. And uh, Zane's mom was so great to bring him into class, was just sort of a gas. Like, I can't believe he just told that. <laughs> and then he showed us Zane's illusion. And Zane's illusion is a really great illusion. It's almost impossible to describe uh, without some visuals. Anyone who wants to find the videos to these folk illusions can just search folk illusions videos and right up at the very top. Uh, probably the first link will be the media files that Indiana University is hosting of these illusions. I'll try to describe one, Clay, uh, real quick. So to do these illusions, you put one hand out in front of you, and then you can make a fist and turn the fist upside down and then bring your forearm in between your two eyes so that it's sort of resting in front of your nose. And then looking past your arms, sort of looking at the other side of the room, uh, you want to take you the other hand and make a pointer finger and then cross that pointer finger in front of your face, and then it should cross in front of your forearm there too. And what will happen is that it will look like your finger is foreshortened or disappearing. Oh yeah. <laughs> Where'd it go? So we had never um, we had never seen that illusion, and that was oh. one of the moments where a kid taught us something that I was just like. Oh! And I could hear a class of, you know, 25 college students all going, oh, what? I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, no, my, my finger disappeared. I just did it. <laughs> yeah. What happened? 
Oh, I, oh. I did it once for a, 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 at a conference with a, maybe a couple hundred people in the audience, and you could hear everyone going, <laughs> you know, with the, the sort of intake of breath, you know. But um, this is sort of the fun part of the book, right, is that whenever you do these illusions, everybody wants to know, well, how does it work? It's like a magic trick. How does it work, right? And the answer is, well, you know, even the most studied illusions that we have, the ones that go, you know, far back uh, uh, and historically have uh, uh, a lot of study done to them, even, for example, rubber pencil, no one really knows. There's some good ideas. People have some good ideas, but nobody really knows. So what we did was for a lot of the illusions, we just, we kind of, we looked at some of the history. If they had been studied, we looked at some of the history uh, and, you know, otherwise it's, uh, it's sort of a, a kind of a guess. We came up with sort of a general idea and Zane's illusion is a, a tremendously good example of it, right? That is we have our, our perceptions are based partly on expectations about the way that things are going to happen. Right. And so, um, when we make a prediction, then if the prediction holds true, like if that's the way the things happen, we generally, we won't notice like that experience doesn't come to, doesn't surface, right? But if something happens that we don't expect, then we will, uh, we'll notice that, right? And so the interesting thing with Zane's illusion is that when you're, when, you're, uh, when your wrist, when your arm is in front of your eyes because of your, uh, whatever you call it, your binary vision, you, the, your wrist actually looks sort of the solid, the overlapping part of your wrist looks very narrow. And so because it looks narrow, you're, you immediately think, well, if something passes behind something that's narrow, then it should come out quickly on the other side, right? And so even though you're a perfectly good human with a perfectly normal arm and you know exactly how wide your arm is when you're in this situation you have a momentary forgetting right and you're you're it's it's as if, it's as if your body sort of um uh, uh 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 puts a higher value on what you're actually seeing rather than what you know and so what you're seeing is a narrow a narrow a block blockage and so your finger goes behind it and it should come out the other side very quickly and it doesn't yeah. and as soon as it doesn't everybody's surprised and it's amazing <laughs> that surprise is amazing right because how can you just think about it for a second like how could you be surprised at this yeah. and yet we are we all and it happens over and over it's like a great joke or a great uh, uh piece of poetry right that you know what the surprise is, you know what's going to happen, and yet when it happens, it still has that surprise value to you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it led us. I mean, it leads us to topics in, for example, aesthetics like that, right? That we really uh, we see these uh, these kinds of reactions in other in other domains, right? And that's one of the things that makes the study of uh, the illusion so interesting. So for listeners who, who, who play Zane's Illusion, um, something that you can do to, that helps unpack the illusion a little bit is you can perform the illusion with your forearm in front of your, in front of your eyes. And, and yes, that's uh, right in between the, the, the sort of blank space of your binocular vision. 
And um, what, what you can do then is, is with your hand, take your forearm away and close your right eye. And what you realize is how much feedback you get from your left eye. So even when my finger is right here, my left eye is tracking where the finger going across my face is. Okay, but whenever you put your forearm there, it denies you that feedback of the left eye. And being denied that feedback, your body makes all kinds of crazy assumptions, like Clay is saying that your wrist must be too small, or your finger is disappearing, or it's foreshortened. What is going on? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it is an excellent surprise. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's fantastic how these crazy assumptions about our body tend to tend to uh, surface even though they are completely counter to anything in our experience, right? So uh, my favorite example of this is, uh, is Aristotle. We call Aristotle's illusion. Well, we don't call it that. Well, we do call it Aristotle's illusion. Aristotle called it Aristotle's illusion. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> but, I think uh, Aristotle didn't call it Aristotle's illusion. Right. Right, because he saw it, it, the, way he, the way he the way he talked about it, it made it seem as though everyone knew it. Right, it was common knowledge. Right, but um, you cross your fingers over each other like that, and uh, I usually I have to use my other hand because I'm now I'm not as flexible as I was when I was a kid. Right, and then you can touch just about anything you want, like the corner of a table, but your nose is really good. You run it along the top of your nose so that you you can feel your nose on either side of your inside of your fingers. And, you know, if you can do that for a, a second, you know, and really feel it and ask yourself what's happening. A lot of people report that they feel like they have two noses. And you don't, you don't even have to tell people in advance that they'll just say, that's really, it's like I have two noses. You yeah. know? And the thing is you're, what is this? Who, what whose body is telling you like you've had one nose your entire life and yet your body's like oh no there's two noses there and it's it's crazy and so and there are there are several of the illusions that the kids do and then others that have been done in the laboratory that come up with those kinds of uh, solutions right yeah so, so getting back to how powerful the kids are, sorry, real quick, just because you brought up Aristotle, it's a good point, Clay. We were talking about Aristotelian logic last night. Aristotle uses some of these core examples from folk illusions to set up his arguments for Aristotelian logic. Look, we cannot trust the senses. I mean, all you got to do is cross your fingers and touch it to your nose and realize, look, we got to be careful about trusting the senses. So this phenomenon is old, and as Clay is suggesting, it's pervasive. And one of the neat things about working with kids is it's easier with kids to prompt them to share folk illusions with us than it is with adults. Hmm. So here's what I mean. Adults will kind of, they'll say, well, yeah, that's like a joke I used to hear. Oh yeah. We used to play pranks too. seems to overlap with different genres and complicated ways. But the very first fieldwork activity we set up in South Louisiana was four 12 year old girls. And we showed them this form called floating arms, where you press your arms against the inside of a door frame or have a friend hold them for about 30 seconds. And then it's called the constant phenomena. Your arms feel as though they're lifting themselves into the air. Uh, and we showed them the chills. And that day they showed us about six or seven different forms that we'd never heard of. Brand new illusions that they showed us just by prompting two, because it was such a part of, well, their repertoire of play activities that with kids, it's so much easier to do that. We get more pushback from adults than we do from kids. Another sort of reason for working with them. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's it, it, it's interesting. And we've been talking kind of largely about these, um, maybe I'll say like uh, you know positive kind of folk illusions. But I, but I was reading about some of them, and they, some of them seemed uh, almost like uh, bullying in a way. Um, the, especially the ro- what was the rose garden yeah, on the, the forearm where you right. oh that sounds horrible. They they like scratch your arms and then pinch oh yeah, form oh yeah, that's dots. kids. Oh. That's kids. <laughs> That's how kids work, you know. I mean, we yeah. we we heard, uh, and we also heard stories from adults who remembered, like very distinctly, feeling pranked or feeling scared by certain of these of these illusions, you know. And some of them don't go away. Like it, like I, I had a um, uh, one person I talked to, an adult who who uh, doesn't like the feeling of having the chills, right? She just yeah. she doesn't like it. It feels bad. And some people are like that. And so when I, when I mentioned this to her, I asked her if she'd ever played this game. And she instantly remembered and was like, oh, my God, no, I, I hate that, you know. Yeah. And so it just came back with a, like a depth of embodied uh, memory that was, it was very striking, you know. Oh, yeah. um, and we get that response from adults. Oh, that's really um, one of the funner elements of doing the research was actually talking with adults because their memory of it is, uh, is somehow, it's somehow, you know, it's connected deeply to childhood and it's somehow connected in a way it's very embodied. And so people often, if they had fun doing it, they will just, they will love it. You know, they will say, Oh, we did. And they'll, they'll actually like to learn a new one. You know, like if you know a new one, then, you know, you had a cocktail party or something and you'd say you could, you know, I can show you how to make your, uh, you know, make your finger disappear. There are people really interested in that, right? But it's, it's not the same as the kids. Now, the people are like, that's, that's cute, you know. But the kids will go crazy over it, right? They really, they want to, they immediately want to tell somebody. That's the thing. They got to show somebody right away, you know. Very important. So, this, the, uh, this makes me think of uh, one, of, one of the most important children's folklorists is this guy called Brian Sutton Smith who uh, did a lot of work on play and the theory of play. And one of his most important ideas is that play is at its core paradoxical. And this is a book about play. And it's almost appropriate that Clay, you and I just totally contradicted each other on what we were saying about the kids and the adults. But I bet there's probably 10 different places in this book where play, Clay and I could perform the paradox. And then they would say, wait, so you're saying the kids play it more than the adults? Yeah, only the kids really do it. But hold on, when adults do figure out what you're talking about, they're really interested in it? Yeah, that's true too. The whole thing is chock full of paradoxes, which is probably indicative of the fact that it is a form based in play. But coming back to this idea of uh, pranks. So pranks moves play past a sort of safe space. You know, if the, if the prototypical example of play is a play bite, it's not a real bite. Play fighting isn't real fighting. Play that is a prank crosses over into a real space where you might feel uh, threatened or you might feel like your feelings are hurt. And um, whenever I was uh, in South Louisiana, I remember this seven-year-old, her name was Charlotte. And um, Charlotte, I was teaching Charlotte Twisted Hands. This is another one that's really hard to explain uh, without visuals, but I'll do my best. You put your hands out in front of you uh, with your fingers open, and then you turn them so that your palm is to the outside. And then what you would do is overlap your arms so that you, your palms are facing each other, even though if your arms aren't overlapped, your palms are facing to the outside of your body. Then you bring your hands together and make a fist. And then 
pull down underneath your arms and you get into this position here, which I can only call it this position here, which is highly twisted and reversed position of the hands. And you look down and the visual presentation of the hand is very much like maybe a kind of prayer grasp. So it looks sort of normal, but of course it's a completely reversed body map. So whenever another playmate comes and points at one of your fingers, without touching that finger, it's really hard to move the finger that your playmate pointed at. Whether or not that's uh, intelligible for those who are only listening to this podcast, uh, you, you can go watch the video on the chills uh, and, and it's much easier with some explanation. And kids never give these kinds of verbal directions. They just run up to each other and say, do this. And then suddenly they're playing the game. But I did that to a seven-year-old girl named Charlotte and I, pointed and she couldn't move her finger. She looked at me very suspiciously and I pointed one more time and she moved the wrong finger. And it wasn't laughter. And she was a happy, playful little child. Uh, it was, she sort of realized that I was messing with her and started kicking at me, kicking at my shin. <laughs> so I had done her wrong. <laughs> That's a field work experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so I want to talk now about the mirrors and the Bloody Mary stuff, because that I found to be fascinating. Um, this, this idea of mirror gazing and um, the, the intensity of light and the, the time uh, that it takes focusing on kind of oneself and then uh, you know, witnessing this kind of change. Um, so is this, uh, kind of Bloody Mary ritual, uh, is that a folk illusion? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Clay, you want to go first? Well, I was going to say that I think this is sort of how we proceed in the sort of the later chapters of the book, right, is it's fun to, to take these things and look at it, study the form, and try to understand what's going on, and then try to see if it's a if we would call it a folk illusion, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a way to, to use sort of the genre, our understanding of the genre, to investigate these forms in the, in the world. So, um, you know, it, it, it meets, Bloody Mary meets most of the requirements for being a folk illusion, right? Um, the, 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 one of the key questions, and it's really has to do in some ways with what we say, what we, the thing that we call the illusion, right? The, the illusion is actually a variety of things in the different forms. It's not always the same thing. Um, uh, so often something is happening, right? Something is happening, but it's the illusion. It, it, it seems as if, it, as if it's one thing or, the, or, or we would characterize it in one way, like floating arms. People say, oh, you feel like your arms are floating up by themselves. And the answer is, yes, it does feel that way, right? So something is happening. And the fact that it's an unusual thing that can get this characterization is sort of the illusion part, right? Your arms aren't raising by themselves or are they? I mean, they really are, right? So um, the question becomes sort of what do people experience when they do Bloody Mary? And that's where the that's where the that's where the field work really gets really really interesting, right? And that's that's really where the uh, where Brandon's experience uh, in Tennessee is really what what sort of makes that uh, 
that accessible for us. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens if you, if, if you want to explain Bloody Mary in a way that would be prototypical of evidence of a folk illusion? is that a youth goes in front of a darkened mirror, almost always it's in the bathroom, um, and in that darkened mirror space, they gaze into the mirror, and they, they don't saccade, they don't look around a lot, they're gazing, maybe staring right between their eyes in low light setting, and after a priming period of about 30 seconds, um, something called the Troxler effect takes over and your peripheral vision begins to fade. And then suddenly that area of the darkened space where the peripheral vision fades gets filled in with visualizations of another face um, in experimental settings. And what's really interesting is that this has been studied experimentally since the 1960s. Um, they were using this comparatively to work on um, one's understanding of oneself between healthy subjects as compared to subjects with different psychopathologies. And so it turns out there's a disconnect for people who have psychopathologies. It's a different experience looking into the mirror than someone with, that's healthy. But uh, more recently, starting in 2009, 2010, uh, a friend of ours, colleague of ours, I would say from um, Italy, who we've conversed with over email and professionally for several years, named Giovanni Caputo, uh, studied what's called the strange face in the mirror illusion. And he was working with actors originally. And he was studying how actors learn to emote uh, on command. It's really hard of us, for us who aren't actors to make a sad face, to make an angry face, to make a confused face. How do, you, how do they teach themselves to do that? And one thing that he stumbled upon is as they were looking in the mirror during these training sessions for acting, they began reporting this strange visual illusion. So one of the variables he was changing was the lighting. So he didn't know about Bloody Mary whenever he started writing about strange face in the mirror illusion in 2010. And so, okay, if that's, ha it's, it's totally possible that youths are going into the bathroom and they're looking in the mirror and they're doing low lighting because it's spooky and they're staring and they aren't saccading and they're creating the same visual experience, phenomenally askew phenomena that um, Giovanni Caputo is creating in the lab in Italy. It's possible. We want to argue that, but the thing is, whenever we ask kids about it, when we get on the ground in a place like Tennessee, where there's a very well-known witch called the Bell Witch, and there they don't say Bloody Mary into the mirror. They say, I hate the Bell Witch, usually seven times, but the number of times it needs to be repeated changes. Um, that what the kids report to us is that no one stays in front of the mirror for 30 seconds. Like, we're not stupid. And <laughs> <laughs> we hear a noise outside of the door or our friends bang on the door to try and scare us. We're out of there. So as we've asked kids in Tennessee, I mean, it seems unlikely that they're being still and not looking around and staring to create the same visual effect that Caputo is chasing in the laboratory. Could it happen? Sure, it could happen. Sure. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about my own personal experiences when I was younger. Um, if I remember correctly, it was you were supposed to say Bloody Mary three times in the bathroom with the, the door shut and the lights off. But now recounting it with this idea of the timing, right? Saying Bloody Mary three times just isn't enough time um, like given kind of Caputo's work, right? yeah. I, I think it's supposed to be a fair amount of time that you're sitting there gazing. It's about a 30 period. second priming period. Yeah, see, and, and 60 sink. second priming period. And a lot of our yeah. have priming periods. When you do the floating arm illusion on the door, you got to press for about 30 seconds. Hmm. But to get to Clay's point about genre, it really depends on what we're going to categorize as the illusion. Because one thing is certainly true 
of Bloody Mary mirror gazing, I hate the Bell Witch um, traditions. And that is, it is combining a semantic space, an enculturated semantic space, a spooky belief in a supernatural entity and the belief that you can summon the entity into the mirror with a phenomenally askew experience. Going in front of the mirror and low lighting and staring at your face is strange. I mean, we say in the book, think about it. How often do you go in the mirror in, in your bathroom and look at yourself in the mirror without having the light on? We always have the light on if we're looking at ourselves in the mirror. What's the point of looking in the mirror if we don't have the light on? So it's already a strange visual experience, even if it isn't that exact Caputo strange face in the illusion. Illusion. True. True. Um, all right. Um, so I, I, we're going to move on here to uh, the the hopes, the impacts, uh, and the future of the work. Uh, what do you, What do you hope for the book and uh, your research more broadly? Uh, what do you hope for it to accomplish? The personal level, maybe even a larger level. Well, one thing I one thing I, that I think we really would like to do uh, that we're trying to make some plans for is to is to try to uh, try to bring this into onto a, a more in, intercultural uh, scale, right? So, doing try to do get some field work done in a place which is you know, somewhere else in the world, right? We have uh, we have talked with a lot of people who've come over to the states who are, you know, not from here, were raised in different countries or different uh, cultures. And um, they, they often report uh, different uh, illusions. Um, and, uh, and so we, you know, we think, and of course, people's bodies tend to be uh, quite similar around the world. So, uh, so we think that it's likely that this thing is something which is more or less universal. I'm cautious about using that term, but it's something which is going to be, uh, uh, which is going to happen uh, to people. And so we're really interested to find out, you know, what, uh, how much of this, or, you know, to look more carefully at what, uh, what would count as, you know, as a folk illusion in, in, in a different culture, right? The different ways that they might be used in, in, uh, in different places. But we've had a little bit of that, a hint of some of that in the United States. So for example, one of the ones that we looked at was um, uh, uh, lights of feather stiff as a board, right? So a lot of people will know about that one, right? Um, and it's, uh, uh, it's another one of these illusions, sort of like Bloody Mary, which is, you know, done maybe uh, at, the, um, at the slumber party. Uh, it's, uh, sometimes uh, goes along with, the, um, with some divination uh, uh, practice or something like that. And, um, and so... Uh, you know, we asked people down here, we were in South Louisiana and we, we, we were asking people, you know, we'd see people and uh, say, you know, have you ever, you know, done uh, Lies of Feather Stiff as a board? And we found a, 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 that a, a large number of people would say, no, absolutely not. Right. Well, you know, have you heard of it before? It's like, oh yeah, I've heard of it. And, but have you ever done it? No. Right. And, and not even want to talk to us anymore. Just, you know, and so, um, you know, it, you know, it's apparent that, that, you know, maybe the, the religious practices of, or the religious elements in the culture are, uh, you know, prescribing or are prohibiting this kind of activity, right? And so people, they don't, they don't want to talk about it. They always, it didn't happen. It's not good, right? And so, um, and so this sort of gives us an idea now, you know, in other places in the country where, you know, Brandon's up in Bloomington, and I don't know how much he's run into that particular, uh, 
response, but not very much, I don't think. Um, so, you know, there are different attitudes towards the different forms, uh, maybe towards the forms overall, what use they might, these things might have in a particular culture. This is all this, these are all open questions, right? And uh, as far as I know, we have no, you know, no uh, previous scholarship on this at all. There's a little bit of scholarship on, and this gets me to the, I think what we'd like to see for the second half in Clay's point about some more cross-cultural researches. There's a little bit of cross-cultural research in uh, perception studies in the context of illusion, but most frequently it's um, working with optical geometric illusions. So you, you go to some place where you're studying a primitive other and you show them optical geometric illusions and you measure how they respond to those illusions as compared to how people from Western, you understand the kind of what we might think of as false dichotomy is set up and how you would work this kind of comparison. And it's led to some theories of perception. So you might remember the Mueller liar illusion, which is where the two lines look as though they're different links because of the direction that the arrows are pointed in on the end of the lines. And using that particular illusion, theorists came up with the idea that people who live in a carpenter world who see more 90 degree angles in our everyday experience are more susceptible to the Mueller liar illusion than people who do not live in a carpentered world. And you know, Boaz is thinking about people who live in uh, basically angled worlds as compared to curvaceous worlds and some of the material culture work leads up to in American anthropology. And so those ideas are in some ways not brand new ideas, but situating the thing that Clay has mentioned a couple times in this interview, which is the intermingling of enculturated semantic space of ideas and a specific perceptual experience that leads to a specific illusory phenomena hasn't happened cross-culturally. And so we'd love to do more of that. And it begs the second part of the question is, in some ways, our book, I think, is like, uh, it's kind of cutting edge in that we're bringing in cognitive science, we're bringing in the most recent experimental studies on any given perceptual phenomena. But in other ways, it's kind of old fashioned, if you think about it in the context of folklore studies, because it's basically a book that goes out and gathers textual examples within a genre that we're trying to fill out and explain. And then a whole lot of cutting edge contemporary folkloristics that's working in that mode. Now we've forgiven ourselves uh, for working that way because it's a brand new genre. We really are just trying to figure out what goes into the genre. But you can imagine how enriching it would be to study some of these things ethnographically in a particular group of kids over a period of time. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, okay, I have to ask it. We're here uh, towards, I'm assuming, the end, and I want to talk about the ASMR stuff. I just want to at least mention it. Um, so, <laughs> all right. So, you know, I, I'm personally interested in this stuff. Uh, this is kind of, I'll explain it kind of briefly here. This, this kind of YouTube phenomena that's happening, um, the acronym ASMR, or Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, as they say. Um, it, it, it's essentially this kind of gathering together of people that, experience and consume these videos of people kind of touching, tapping, role-playing, uh, blow-drying their hair, uh, all sorts of different things um, that people kind of watch for this kind of ritual uh, stimulation. And they report uh, various kind of sensory experiences that they have with that, um, kind of like a goose flesh, goose bumps uh, kind of situation or um, you know, some this kind of like 
uh, tingling sensation that they report that starts kind of uh, towards the head and, and kind of moves downward. Um, so I, I just have to say, there seems to be some overlap here uh, with your work on perception and illusions. And then this kind of uh, experiential thing uh, that's happening online where people are, are, are role playing and, and blow drying their hair and people watch that uh, for, for these tingly sensations. Um, and so I was wondering if uh, you could speak to that maybe a little bit. <laughs> the, the ASMR stuff, I, I ended up reading a lot about it when I was trying to, to work more on, uh, on, the, um, on the chills, right? And it's a very interesting, it's, I think that the, the scientists are very interested in this, especially the, like the physiology scientists, right, are very interested in this, uh, in any of these kinds of uh, phenomena where there's something happening to your body that can somehow be tracked, right? So like there's been some work done on the floating arms because, because you, can, you, can, you can sort of monitor the muscle innervation uh, uh, in, and, and that is sort of uh, keep track of very specifically about how much uh, energy is being exerted by the uh, particular muscles in particular context. And so the chills has that quality, right? Because you can measure the, the uh, conductivity on the skin. You can measure, um, you can see the uh, horpillation, right? The, uh, the, the hair raising. Um, and uh, you can, and there's been other connections too. For example, there's heart rate that you can measure that's been uh, related. And also uh, your, uh, the, um, your, uh, your eyes uh, dilation, right? So uh, those things are all, you know, part of the physiological response to, you know, getting the chills. And that, you know, a lot of the people who've studied the ASMR now are reporting that like uh, many of the users report that it's, it's, it's qualitatively different from the, from just uh, getting the chills or what they call the, um, what they sometimes call referred to like the, um, uh, you know, art chills, right. That you get from, some kind of artistic frisson. The frisson is usually yes, usually that's a term that's often used for the for that uh, aesthetic chill that you get, right? Um, but there are a lot of things that are in common. For example, auditory experience is is uh, is a very important element, right? And so with ASMR, you're it's almost all auditory, right? Like the you wa you watching the people do the thing that they're doing. You know, they run water in the sink and make water splashing noises or they crinkle paper, you know, and, and that, and that leads to it. But it's, you know, it's mostly the auditory experience of the, the whispering, the person's just whispering very quietly and you're not sure what they're saying, but all these things lead to what m most users say is a much more intense experience. Right. But the, I think there's no question that there's, that there's some element of the, of sort of the folk illusion that's, that's there, right? Um, you can read online about people, for example, who talk about, you know, having heard about it and gone on and tried to, and, and listened and, and, and experienced it. And, and then later after doing it for many times, then they sort of had a real one, what they'll call it, a, I had a real one, right? And the intensity of it was so much greater that, that made them think that, that what they were having before was not the illusion, right? It was not, not the uh, experience, not the desired experience. So 
Um, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a quite a bit to be done there. And so of course there's also the overlap with other, um, uh, uh, similar types of relaxation techniques that are becoming uh, prominent. Um, people that do this uh, uh, squeezing, they make this stuff that you squeeze, right? And you just do all the squeezing, you squeeze these, uh, and you learn how to make them at home with different materials and you squeeze them. And this uh, relaxation activity, right? So I think there's an interesting set of overlaps right there. Yeah. I really like that particular topic just to squeeze in one more comment on it. And it's, it's it goes right to the core, I think, of one of the ideas of the book. Uh, so there you can divide perception studies into two camps, theoretical camps, direct perception, sometimes called ecological perception in a more contemporary setting, and active perception, which allows for a lot of higher order processes constantly co-mingling with lower order processes, bottom up, top down processes. And so we, Clay and I fall on the active perception side of that pretty clearly. And one of the, one of the, real, the most important argument that we're making for uh, perception theory is that not only is perception active, not only is it active based upon the perceiver's past experience, but it's based upon an enculturated version of past experience. And is that we are bringing our culture to bear on the way that we actually perceive the world that shows up in folk illusions. So something that I think is super interesting but what, what we've got is a communal system of aesthetic value judgment in what Clay expressed about whether it was a real facade or a fake facade. And anytime you've got an aesthetic meta-knowledge about a particular form, a tradition, we know we're looking at something like genuine folklore at that point. And I would say at that point that we're probably whatever, however ASMR is different than what is measurable in the laboratory in the context of the chills, uh, it's going to be merged, coalesced in significant ways with the particular communities that you're talking about. Thank you, Dr. Brandon Barker, Dr. Claiborne Rice. Again, the book is Folk Illusions, Children, Folklore, and Sciences of Perception at Indiana University Press. production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and Some Other Clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Sound Lore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.